if we design a system anticipating no mistakes, we're misjudging what's going to happen. We need to build a system recognizing that we will make mistakes. We want to accommodate that. And the way to do that is through design. Build the design of the streets such that it has enough safety buffers when something goes wrong so that it can prevent someone from being catastrophically injured. The way to do it safely would be to uh, reduce speed. You reduce speed, you're, you're reducing the size of your problem. Welcome to Bike Talk. I am Lindsay Sturman, and today we are talking to Dr. Offer Grembeck, who is at UC Berkeley, and he co-runs Safe Transportation Research and Education Center. And uh, that's pretty much what we do, is safe transportation research and education. And uh, um, we're affiliated both with the Institute of Transportation Studies, which is uh, transportation, more transportation engineering and city planning. And then uh, we're also affiliated with the School of Public Health. So it gives us this triangular, triangular perspective of traffic safety that involves the communities, the planning, the engineering, and the public health side of that. That's really important. And, and when we talk about the, you know, bike people are, you know, we have our, people have our reasons why they want bikes, but I feel like that when you get into the climate issue and the health issue, what the, um, not just the emissions, but the plastic off the tires, what's causing now Alzheimer's, it's called causing MS. This almost, it's almost like a moral imperative at this point that we get cars off the road. And um, thank you. But tell us one question is what, a complete street, what would you, what do you think are the requirements for a safe street, a complete street? What should it include? Well, uh, um, I, I do have to start by saying that a complete street does not mean that it's a safe street. And uh, um, a complete street um, uh, can be done or for a complete street to be done that it's also safe, you need to kind of make sure you're addressing everything because if you're mixing more modes together, you have to be more mindful about the interactions. And that's, uh, um, but, but to answer your question, if it would need to be boiled down to one thing, so a safe complete street would have uh, a speed that um, is a safe speed for the modes that are engaged with that facility. How important is the speed of cars to safety? The single most important factor, um, the speed affects safety in two ways. Um, it affects the chances of being involved in a crash. Uh, people in the past have thought about it. Well, if everyone's going the same speed, it's not a safety problem. It's okay. It's more when the speed changes, it becomes a problem. And that's not true. Because uh, when you're going faster, your ability to respond when something goes wrong is uh, uh, diminished by a lot. So uh, going at a slower speed actually gives you the opportunity or it's, uh, you're carrying a much smaller amount of kinetic energy and it, you have more opportunities to control that kinetic energy so it will not uh, result in a catastrophic outcome. And then the second component, again, driven by the speed and the kinetic energy is that if you're going faster, all else equal. Uh, the impact of the crash is just going to be uh, harder and uh, uh, pretty quickly it becomes unsurvivable. 
So uh, uh, automobiles travel at higher speeds, carry a huge amount of kinetic energy, and uh, um, it is just very hard in an instant to control or contain um, that kinetic energy in a way that would protect occupants and especially non-occupants. Wow, yeah, no, it's really, it is stunning, the statistics. Um, so, well, is there anything else you wanna add from uh, the stuff we've been talking about? Uh, yes, so uh, um, uh, the, there seems to be more buying in by communities and maybe and slowly also policymakers that we need to change the way we think about safety. It typically falls under the more the branding of Vision Zero or the safe system approach, which are very similar. And what uh, these uh, approaches or philosophies teach us is that there are two, uh, it has a variety of things, but the two most important things are A, uh, users make mistakes and uh, we can no longer expect the, the community or a person or a human to be perfect all the time. At some point, we're gonna make a mistake, not intentionally, not because uh, uh, we're bad, but just because we're humans. We're gonna be late, we're gonna be uh, emotional, we're gonna be uh, uh, distracted. Maybe we had a glass of wine that is legal uh, um, and uh, we're gonna have an instantaneous lapse of judgment and um, expecting, and that's something that's undesirable and we wanna to try to reduce that. But if we design a system anticipating no mistakes, we are putting ourselves in a challenge that uh, uh, we are, we're uh, misjudging what's going to happen. So that's kind of the first component. We need to build a system recognizing that we will make mistakes. We want to minimize it, but we want to accommodate that. And the way to do that is through design. So we want to buy, build the design of the streets such that it has enough safety buffers uh, uh, when something goes wrong so that it can uh, uh, prevent someone from being uh, catastrophically injured. Uh, the way to do it with uh, uh, complete streets is kind of one way that can be dovetailed with that because if you're mixing together uh, modes, uh, the way to do it safely would be to uh, reduce speed. You reduce speed, you're, you're reducing the size of your problem. Uh, which is the amount of kinetic energy that's being carried. So the uh, um, and that's uh, so the uh, uh, just to repeat that the first part is we need to recognize that humans make mistake. The second part is we need to make sure that our system can contain or control the amount of kinetic energy that's carried by the different uh, modes. Yeah, I think in one of your videos, you talked about redundancies, like a hospital would have redundancies, like you have a backup generator because the, the, the result of a power outage is catastrophic. So you, and then you have batteries, so you have multiple redundancies so that when people make a mistake, they're, they're caught. Exactly, exactly. So you wanna incorporate redundancies in your design, in your education, in your technology. Technology can be a big partner of transportation. Um, because uh, it can bring innovation and can help provide solutions to things that we didn't think about before. What would it look like for a city to sit down and do, I don't know if the word, right word is charrette, and pull all the experts together and design a new transportation system, bike lanes, transit, I mean, is that possible? How big of, and one thing that people talk about they really wish is that we would, we pre-identify where our housing would go so that we stop this like 
you know, hand-to-hand combat over every single building project where we just, we, we, we really design the density, design the transportation. Is that possible? Has anyone ever done that? Um, definitely possible. The, the challenge is that, or and it is done in places that uh, have very uh, strong development uh, in places that before that uh, were not uh, used. So if you're building a brand new neighborhood in a place that there was no neighborhood before, you are in a position to kind of take a step back, figure out how in this neighborhood will I be able to serve a lot of different modes? What are the priorities that as a city and as a community, I want to make sure are addressed? And then you take time through the um, uh, sketching board and the, the blueprints to make sure that it meets both the uh, um kind of design standards and the needs of the city and the community. So it's definitely possible. The challenge is that uh, uh, many times with existing um, with existing uh, cities or neighborhoods is that uh, all of the public space is already accounted for. So even if uh, an agency or a city wants to kind of reappropriate a little bit some of the space and figure out how to, or tries to project how to best serve the community in a decade or two decades and what design or land use modifications need to be done to accommodate that. It's a very um, hard process to go against the, the status quo. So change is always hard and change with a built physical public environment is very hard because that's what people are used to. So uh, um, it is something that uh, in my mind can be accomplished through more engagement with the community uh, groups of advocates, groups of researchers, groups of city officials to sit together and kind of envision what it is that we want tomorrow for our neighborhood, for our jurisdiction. And then through that, you establish some sort of uh, um, uh, future assumptions on what are the values. And when you come to a, uh, evaluate new projects, you need to kind of check it against that list. Ooh, are we able to make sure we have equity here? Are we able to make sure we have accessibility here? Are we able to make sure we have kind of a sustain access to sustainable modes? And once, uh, but it requires this taking a step back, getting the stakeholders involved, agreeing on what are the principles that we wanna move ahead with. And then when you do a project, your project is much more forward compatible as opposed to many of the projects today that are backwards compatible. They have requirements for amount of parking and amount of things that uh, uh, maybe made sense a few decades ago, maybe made sense at the time, but uh, uh, are obsolete. So uh, um, in my mind, uh, um, it is uh, definitely doable in new development uh, and to make it work for existing places that are already uh, uh, developed, you need to take a step back, realign the expectations, set uh, the priorities for that community, and only then will it be a lot more uh, streamlined uh, that uh, uh, 10, 20 year projects kind of happen all the time, but then within 10, 20 years, uh, those neighborhoods will be able to look a lot more like the communities want them. Wow. So has, have, has anyone ever built from the ground up a, bike, a biking, walking community? Um, I, I think it's happening in some, uh, in some places in Asia, but uh, I'm not aware. I'm sure, I'm sure it has, but I'm not aware of any uh, or no 
example from North America jumps to mind now. Um, many times, many times kind of on the fringe and in kind of the outskirts, uh, the more um, default design would be uh, suburban uh, uh, with cul-de-sacs. Uh, and that's kind of just because that's how we've done it before. So the, the reality is that uh, although I said it's easy, it still doesn't happen because you're basically going on what what did we do before what did we do before but the opportunity to do it in a new development is huge uh, um, and kind of uh, uh, just need to get people's minds curious about it and then kind of, what if we redesign this neighborhood that doesn't look like a classic um, uh, uh, cookie cutter suburb but actually looks like a community that would allow uh, uh, its residents uh, for more mixed land use and access. Uh, using uh, uh, bikes or public transportation. I mean, In my mind, it would be attractive, it, but uh, uh, it doesn't always happen. Because I think there, I mean, the, the numbers are enormous of people who either don't own a car, there's a ton of people with disabilities who can't drive, but they can bike on an adaptive bike or a trike, especially an e-bike, e-trike. Um, and then there's people who can't afford to own a car or people just don't want to because they don't want to contribute to climate change or they want to be healthy. Um, what would it look like? I mean, Santa Monica airport, they're redoing, like what would, you know, could you build from the ground up a community where it's for people who don't want to drive? Obviously you can have a car come in and drop some stuff, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, a, a, like build a Copenhagen, build an Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. In my mind, it can come from the policymakers, maybe Sacramento, maybe DC, that you incentivize uh, more um, complete neighborhood or complete street uh, development, uh, not just require it as it is in, in, in some situations now, but actually incentivize it because a lot of this is coming from developers uh, um, and kind of a... Um, and they typically develop, they typically have become successful if they're big developers and they became successful by developing suburbs. So now, ooh, let's do what we've done before. Uh, and if there are incentives for them to pivot a little bit and try to see how can they build it differently, um, then they will uh, um, see the value of that because I believe that, uh, as you said, the communities definitely want that. Uh, if people are faced with a choice, where do you want to live? Uh, they'll probably want to live in a place that's more uh, sustainable and friendly. I've been interviewing mom and pop builders, like, you know, small shops that are building housing for people, like nothing luxury. And, and they dream of building without parking. They dream of building. They don't want to build parking. It costs more to build the parking than it costs to build the unit. They're like, this is, so they would, they would jump at the chance to build housing for people uh, who just want a bike, just so you know. <laughs> uh, well, that's great. That's great. Uh, um, so these voices need to come also from the developers. The developers also have a lobby with the policymakers, the community have a lobbies. And I think that there might be other, uh, um, maybe even industry partners for this now too, because a lot of the micromobility companies are actually faced with a, a situation that, uh, um, uh, the, the roadway is actually not built for uh, the modes that they are renting out. And uh, uh, if you start from scratch, you actually, okay, we'll be able to accommodate uh, uh, micromobility in a safe way. 
uh, with this new design. But for that, you need to kind of bring in all the stakeholders. And in my mind, uh, uh, the vehicle or the automobile has room as part of that mix too. It has value. It has uh, uh, it provides accessibility for some people. It should not be the only thing that's prioritized, but it's definitely part of the uh, kind of bouquet of transportation modes that we would want to be able to uh, best serve communities. Have you seen the book Drawdown? It's a New York Times bestseller. Can you see it? Um, I see it now, but I haven't seen it before. And they basically take, I think it's like about a hundred different ways. It, it does the, and looks at every way we can reduce our emissions and then puts a price tag on it. It's like, what is the capacity? Wind has incredible capacity to lower our emissions. And here's the cost, you know, per gigaton, um, EVs. And the thing about bikes in e-bikes, bike infrastructure and e-bikes is they, they're not even cheap. They're, they're net positive. You make money on it because it saves you so much money and it, it saves you money in, in highways. You, you know, you don't have to build highways. It saves you money in healthcare costs. It saves money. Local businesses go all the ways that it actually saves you money. EVs actually save you a ton of money too, because once you get the sunk cost of switching over, people aren't paying for gas. So it creates, you know, billions of dollars in savings year after year. Um, thank you. So it, it'd be interesting to talk to an economist and sort of, you know, look at like, th this is the money we're leaving on the table by not doing bike lanes. So this is a main barrier, I think, for a lot of better, more sustainable forward thinking transportation projects, because uh, for the most part, the traditional way to decide if it's go, no go, is to do some sort of benefit cost analysis. Uh, but unfortunately, in the benefit, it typically would include a very limited amount of um, uh, typically quantifies uh, uh, mobility, maybe delays, uh, and it fails to incorporate many other uh, co-benefits that would be derived from, for example, building a bike lane, if it's emissions, if it's uh, uh, health. If it's uh, uh, safety, if it's built right, and uh, suddenly it makes some projects that may seem not cost effective before to be uh, a lot more compelling. As you said, some of them are even starting to make money, but there is a, a limited ability to fuse all these co-benefits together. Uh, but it is shown time and time again that when you aggregate the co-benefits of these type of designs, you're better off. Uh, from an economics perspective than before. And on top of that, also from a, a social perspective. Wow. Um, well, I, I, I would love to talk to an economist, if you know anybody who'd be willing to talk to us about aggregating this into, so that people can really get the picture and, and understand what we're doing to ourselves economically. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to send someone your way. Uh, um, and then on the topic of safety, there is another thing that, uh, um, so despite everything I said, there is also a need to, uh, we want to make sure our benefit costs has all of the right components, but we also want to do the benefit cost after we've made the uh, more moral decision. So for example, for traffic safety, um, we don't necessarily want to make the decisions just based on the amount of lives that it would save and the cost of that. We want to make the moral statements, we want to build a system in which no one can be severely or fatally injured on, and then use the economics principles to build it in the most cost-effective way. So it's not everything is traded off as a, a cost-effective, as a, a benefit cost. 
we want to let the policymakers make the decision. This is the system we want to build in terms of safety, in terms of sustainability, in terms of equity, and then use these economic economic principles to make sure we're building it in the most cost-effective way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, the the when you account for healthcare, you know, obviously in the Netherlands, 30% of people bike, I think it's like 30% of trips. And it's the, the, the it's billions and billions of dollars. If you extrapolated those numbers to California, it's like, it's really in the high billions um, that we would save in, you know, heart disease, cancer and diabetes and obesity related diseases. Uh, that is uh, something that I know more and more agencies are trying to figure out. Everything is very siloed in kind of the um, in the agency side and uh, things like connecting safety with environment, with mental health, with other things are typically each agency looks at their own domain um, and only when they start talking to each other, they recognize, oh, that actually also benefits us. And then you need kind of upper level government to fuse all these things together to make a better decision. The decisions are typically siloed. So you make the transportation decision and the public health decision and then the um, uh, uh, mental health and other considerations, you make all these decisions separately. And there isn't a function in most cities that aggregate that to say, this is the right decision for our city because it benefits different, what I like to call floors in the, the, the building of a city. Is there, it'd be really interesting if somebody put all those numbers together. Cause I, I cause even if it's, I, I agree you have to lead with issues of, of safety and equity and, and access. But it's really compelling because it's like every dollar we're not spending subsidizing driving and subsidizing traffic and subsidizing people getting killed. <laughs> we are spending on education and healthcare and the things we really care about. Absolutely. Um, well, let me know if you know any PhD candidates or students or anybody or economists who'd want to work to do that. Totally. Thank you so much for talking to us. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Hi, Damien. Great to see you again. So I have one question. Well, it's been a regular question or a regular point of debate by NIMBYs who don't want bike lanes. And uh, specifically, Fix the City has used it as an argument against bike lanes, which is bike lanes are, per them, the cause of slowing down emergency response vehicles. And by visual evidence, I don't see that. But I wanted to know if you had any actual empirical evidence or studies or anything like that that shows one way or another to me logically they don't because it obviously gives you another lane that an emergency vehicle could drive in even you know if necessary in an emergency but that's uh that's an argument that's been used to kill various different bike projects 
across the city of Los Angeles by Fix the City and other organizations that don't want them. I'm familiar with this argument. There isn't too much empirical evidence to help kind of answer that. And uh, the challenges that typically, from what we understand, come in two different places. One is it, uh, uh, it creates a situation that the emergency vehicle might need to be situated a little bit further away from a, a house or some sort of a, a, um, infrastructure element that needs to be, uh, or that needs help. And the second is that uh, the turning radii are kind of uh, uh, too big uh, for some of the, or kind of uh, too challenging for some of the emergency uh, vehicles. And uh, I'll start more with the turning angle or the turning radii. So uh, in many cities, there are uh, buses and some cities have even long buses that are able to make these turns uh, pretty safely, uh, pretty confidently. So it's not, uh, so we have evidence that for vehicles that are just as large, maybe even larger, uh, that for a large extent also have less maneuverability than emergency vehicles are able to negotiate these turns uh, pretty safely. So that's, uh, uh, that's aspect one. I can see how it might need to uh, slow someone down taking these turns, but uh, uh, we're talking about a, a second or two. We're not talking about something that would, uh, um, um, uh, that, would be a, that would be any noticeable delay. Uh, the second thing is um, in terms of distance from a house or from a store is that uh, um, there are, for the most part, um, you can still encroach and kind of uh, get very close uh, to the house with the existing fleet. However, uh, uh, some cities are also looking at, um, um, as the fleet gets older, of replacing some of the existing uh, emergency vehicle with vehicles that are a little bit shorter, a little bit different. So it's something that uh, is not a it's not a, a barrier. It's maybe more of a, a of a delay if a city wants to incorporate a few more vehicles that are a little bit more nimble. Uh, um, then they can definitely be able to reach all of the facilities that are there. So from what uh, we've seen, heard, um, we haven't done. Uh, uh, first-hand research on this is that this is not a real long-time barrier. These are things that can be uh, figured out. And uh, uh, since today we think about traffic safety as a system, this is something that is part of uh, uh, part of the focus. So it's a component of the system that also needs to be modified so it can accommodate uh, safer access for uh, bicyclists and for other modes. So it's not something that goes against, it's actually something that goes uh, very well with thinking about this as a system and modifying different parts of the system uh, that would include, uh, that can also include uh, turnover of some of the emergency vehicle fleet. Okay, so I'm gonna, let, let me just look at different aspects and see if I can get some additional comments or data on this. Because um, it, it is a problem in terms of the arguments. And a lot of the arguments actually center around the fact that if you take away a, a lane of traffic and you put either a bike, regular bicycle lane or a protected bicycle lane, especially when it starts dealing with protected bicycle lanes, therefore you are clogging up the road and therefore emergency response vehicles can't get through because the road is generally slower, which is, is the general, you know, uh, where things are going 
or safer roads is we're, we're trying to slow down those roads that are high speed networks where there's a lot of injuries. How, what do you, what can you say about that specifically? Because that's the biggest argument is not, at least that I've heard, it's not necessarily the turning radius so much in LA. It's more the, well, we've taken away a road for a bicycle lane, therefore emergency response vehicles can't get through because instead of having three lanes, we only have two and people are traveling slower as a result of that, therefore people will die. Yeah, so uh, um, the, uh, so that seems like it's almost a different floor needs uh, in kind of the city needs to take care of that. There are uh, congestion problems um, already. It's not like right now the roads are not congested um, by... Uh, adding more congestion? Is it gonna make it harder for the emergency vehicles to get to a place, yes or no? Hard to say, but uh, um, I'm not this. There are so many efforts that need to be done to mitigate congestion and prioritize uh, more efficient modes that, uh, um, that can address this concern. So uh, in my mind, yes, in a specific situation, it can be that uh, a vehicle will be, uh, more congestion can cause a longer time to get there, but the congestion is already there. So kind of part of the solution is to uh, um, allocate more public space to bike lanes and more public space to public transportation. As a result of that, you would be able to reduce congestion in the city that would clear up access, uh, also kind of more free access for um, uh, for emergency vehicles. So in my mind, it's kind of a, a, a chicken and egg, but uh, uh, allocating more space to bicycles would help reduce congestion um, and not necessarily um, increase congestion. Okay, I mean, that makes sense. Um, is that something, because it sounds like it's, it's honestly an area that hasn't been properly just, just uh, statistically documented in terms of, okay, areas where there was a lot of congestion, now there's more bicycles, there's less congestion, and or specific street designs that um, mitigate such a problem. Um, where you, you're putting in protected bike lanes, and but the street design is set up in such a way that um, it doesn't actually affect emergency response vehicles. Um, I mean, that seems like something that should be studied and, and data sort of presented there so that it can be used for future arguments. Uh, you're asking the, um, should be studied the impact of additional bike lanes on congestion? Um, yeah, so it's specifically on congestion as it relates to emergency response vehicles. In other words, uh, yeah. this is more of a comment, like how do, we, how do we get something, a study like that properly done to show in these lane configurations or in these certain styles, it's shown to be um, either a benefit for emergency response times or it doesn't hinder emergency response times because something like that, where there's an actual study that would go against the arguments of various different groups that are out there, that are that is their main reason to kill bike lanes, is well, um, someone might you know might take them 20 seconds longer, and 20 seconds can be the difference between life and death for someone. Therefore, bike lanes will kill people. That's their their logic. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, and, and without a hard study, it's it's you know it's just a matter of passion, back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, so that uh, um, uh, in my mind, it's uh, so there isn't, yes, there aren't good studies to kind of uh, uh, compare that. And it would be almost impossible to do an uh, uh, empirical study 
that would do that because the reality of emergency situations is that they're never the same. So we cannot really have a comparison. Uh, in terms of how to address the problem, this problem, I see it as a design problem and as a policy practice uh, problem. And in my experience and understanding the emergency response people are extremely creative. Uh, uh, they're kind of trained to find solutions. And maybe if they're looped in more uh, intentionally into this, they can develop their own policies and practices so that they can figure out, oh, despite this bike lane, we actually can uh, keep the same access we had before, maybe even uh, have better access because it's an opportunity to kind of relook at your practices. They are very creative. They, uh, they like to, they have to kind of, their job requires them to think outside the box. Uh, uh, they should not be expected to do it um, uh, in real time, but maybe there's an effort to sit down with uh, the emergency response people and see what kind of move the assumptions a little bit and see what modifications to their uh, practices or their fleet can be done so that they maintain and potentially even increase uh, their response time uh, during an emergency. So I don't see it as a zero-sum uh, situation. I see there's also an opportunity to uh, uh, improve their response time. Damien, yeah, can I frame your... Can I frame your concern slightly differently? Because I think it's so important. Um, first, it's just like the, the sort of slight hypocrisy of like, we can't have bike lanes because it'll create congestion. <laughs> and it's like, well, why don't we just deal with congestion then? And we know how to deal with congestion. It's congestion pricing is that, you know, the idea of right-sizing our streets, like we shouldn't have traffic ever. It's like an absolute drain on the economy. It pollutes for no reason. Like if we're going to like <laughs> limit our emissions, why would you allow traffic to be a part of it? Like the, you're like, oh, hey, we need, you know, emissions for hospitals. Got it. Like, we need emissions for certain things. Got it. But like, why would you allocate emissions around traffic, which everyone hates? Um, but that led me to the, a question of, has anyone quantified when you put in a bike lane, how much, how many people, at what point do you get people into bike lanes so it lessens congestion? Because I think there's got to be a mathematical formula around like, if you network enough bike lanes, you will get a certain, or maybe there isn't, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, at what mm. point do you kind of create a tipping point where people just, so many people start biking that you really lose the congestion? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And there isn't, uh, unfortunately, there isn't a very uh, a, a simple answer because the way that, or the impact of bicycle lanes on uh, reducing congestion is closely related to uh, people's origins and destinations and kind of the layout and uh, uh, the built environment and the land use. So some people, uh, their day-to-day -day activities are just further away uh, that it might not necessarily be bikeable. But that's where the planning comes in and you want to make sure that your bicycle network is well aligned with public transit. And that really then extends uh, the accessibility and distance. And then you start seeing a stronger impact on the, of the reduction in congestion. So just the bike lanes by itself, by themselves, it would have a reduction. But uh, uh, if you're looking for kind of a bigger uh, impact, it's when it actually is well aligned with the public transit. Um, and then and then people can actually get a much longer distance and can get uh, more conveniently to their destinations. And that, that has that been studied? Like, could could experts design a system, say, for LA, 
of bike lanes and transit that we could predict how much congestion will go down? Uh, as academics, the answer is yes. Okay, but uh, uh, our job is typically simpler. So yes, yeah, so we have models that, that demonstrate that this can be uh, done and how would it look? But then the reality is that when you come to put these things, uh, when the rubber meets the road, uh, then there's so many other considerations that as academics, uh, we, it is very hard for us to take into, uh, to add into our models. So these are restrictions that the city has and then there are restrictions that communities has. And then uh, uh, slowly we're kind of moving away from the optimal solution. However, it is still uh, demonstrated that it will be better than the existing solution. But the challenge in this case is not, uh, do we have evidence that this would work? Uh, uh, because we've modeled evidence that it would work. It's kind of the implementation of that has so many constraints that uh, um, uh, it makes it very, very hard Oh, it's just a slow process. It's not very hard. It's just a slow process. So you need to have a long-term plan and the intention to follow through and eventually get to the point that uh, uh, your communities are well served by more sustainable modes. Makes sense. Um, okay, so I, mean, I think you've answered most of my questions as best you can, considering the, the data set that you currently have. Um, so as a, as a comparison, there is, um, there's a number of studies out there that go over the use of speed humps and as they relate to emergency response vehicles. And I assume you're familiar with at least a couple of those uh, that have been published. Um, two things, one, there is a type of speed hump which has got a, a cut through where uh, let's say an emergency response vehicle could go pretty fast to do a speed hump if they are driving down the middle of the road. What is that, you know what I'm talking about? What, are the, what type, what is that called? I mean that specific speed hump. Yeah, is that a? It's got a. Does that have a specific technical name? Do you, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Where the they've got. Yeah, but, uh, but unfortunately, I'm not familiar with the technical name of that. But uh, um, uh, but maybe that's also an example that these are solvable design problems. So uh, uh, if you kind of recognize that um, there is a modification to the built environment that can accommodate that can serve the purpose of slowing down traffic and also uh, allow more streamlined access uh, for emergency vehicles, uh, uh, then it can be done. It's not one or the yeah. other. Exactly. And, and so that was lead to my second, led, led to my second part, which is, are you familiar, are you aware of any design modifications to protected bike lanes that would still give you a largely protected bike lane while allowing emergency response vehicles to, if necessary, use the protected bike lane as a pass-through um, to around congestion. Is that, do you know of any design plans on, or design, standardized designs that, that incorporate that? I don't, and I think that's a really good uh, research question and uh, um, uh, can potentially involve all of the stakeholders in something like that. That's something I'm going to try to follow up on, but I'm not from, I'm not uh, aware of any designs that have taken that into account. Okay, great. Well, I would love to talk to you further about that specific thing because that is the that one little point is the linchpin that has been used to kill so many protected bike lanes in Los Angeles by only a few people, but they get a lot of other people impassioned about it. And if that can be, you know, really tackled then we've sucked the wind out of the sail out of you know, groups that 
you really just focus on killing bike lanes. Yeah, I am not aware of, a, a kind of just to add to that, of any situation where as a result of wide scale implementation of a bicycle network, the ability of emergency responses, uh, emergency respondents to uh, serve their community is uh, diminished. So in, in many places, uh, they're able to live in harmony, uh, a lot of bicycle facilities and uh, uh, high level top quality emergency response. So I think there's definitely evidence that they can work well side by side. And I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm totally with you on that. Well, I, I appreciate you taking some time to answer these questions. Lindsay, thank you for facilitating on this. Um, I am moving off to my next thing. So uh, hopefully we will reconnect again soon. Great to totally. talk to you. Talk to you guys later. So interesting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.